Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. For more than five years, Deep State Radio has been on top of all the key foreign policy and national security stories impacting the world. We're incredibly grateful to our members who support our work and hope that you will consider becoming a member. Members receive access to exclusive bonus content, the opportunity to participate in discussions via our member Slack community, our weekly member briefings, and our new Ukraine Daily Brief newsletter delivered to your inbox each evening. Members also receive all of our content via private member feed. To become a member, visit bit.ly slash dsrmember and enter code APRIL2022 to receive 28% off a monthly or annual membership. That's bit.ly slash dsrmember and code APRIL2022. Thank you. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the podcast. I'm your host, David Rothkopf, and I'm joining you today from New York City. Today we are joined in Washington, D.C. by Rosa Brooks. Rosa holds the Scott K. Ginsburg Chair in Law and Policy at Georgetown University Law School, where she also serves as Associate Dean for Centers and Institutes. How are you today, Rosa? I'm well, David. Thank you. Very good to have you. Also, Ed Luce, the National Editor and Columnist at the Financial Times. How are you today, Ed? Great. Thanks, David. And we are joined by our friend, Ambassador Douglas Lute, who is the former U.S. permanent representative to NATO, former career military officer, and currently chairs the international defense practice at BGR Group. How are you today, Doug? I'm well, David. So we've been covering what's been going on in Ukraine pretty closely for the past several weeks, and we tend to start each podcast with a look at the current situation, because it changes so rapidly. And so I'm going to turn to you first, Doug, on that. It seems over the course of the past several days that the reports that the Russians would move their focus from targets in Western Ukraine, notably Kyiv, to uh, places where they had established a foothold in 2014 the Donbass, Luhansk, and so forth, seems to be underway. The U.S. government has suggested that's underway. I've seen reports that it will take a couple weeks for that to happen, that some of the Russian forces that are being pulled out of the West may take much longer than that to become battle-worthy again. And I've also seen reports that the West is going to use those two weeks to prepare and provide aid to Ukraine. Is that a fair assessment of where you think that stands? And do you think there is an opportunity for further Ukrainian gains in that part of the world? Or are the Russians too well entrenched? 
Well, David, I think that's a fair summary with a couple of comments. So first of all, the withdrawal program seems to be from in and around Kyiv. And you'll recall that there were two axes of advance, Russian advance uh, toward Kyiv, one to the northeast and one to the northwest. And those seem to be in the midst of being recovered. Now, I don't know, though, if this will be as easy as it sounds on this podcast. They'll have to reverse course from the invasion routes. And this means they'll be largely roadbound as the Russian forces make their way from the outskirts of Kyiv back across the border, either into Belarus or into Russia. And they'll be very susceptible during that withdrawal to continued interdiction by Ukrainian forces. So the forces that are leaving will continue to suffer attrition and be further reduced. That means that they won't be easily recovered into either Belarus or Russia, refit, uh, refurbished, and then returned into the fight, perhaps in the east. I think those forces are largely spent. And I, I discount the capacity of the Russian machine, which has so far proven so incapable of sort of refitting them and replacing them back into the fight. So I think the good news is they're departing. They'll suffer continued attrition. I don't think we're going to see these forces again anytime soon. I just don't think the Russians have that, that capacity. Likewise, uh, to the south, where the Russians have gained more ground and are close to establishing a land bridge between the Donbass and the Crimea Peninsula, which, which would be a significant operational objective. They will also there, however, uh, continue to suffer attrition because the Ukrainian forces will not give up the fight there, even if the linchpin here, the city of Mariupol, actually falls decisively to the Russians. So yes, there's a, a move afoot to sort of clean up the battlefield from these initial five axes of attack by Russia, but the, the going is going to continue to be very tough on the ground for the Russian forces. Ed, you've been concerned in the past about the ability of the Western alliance to hold it together. One of the other things that's happened over the course of the past several days is, of course, more and more reports of Russian atrocities with pictures and other forms of substantiation to back them up, notably in Bucha and other such places. Do you think that'll have an effect on galvanizing the West and leading the West to redouble its efforts in support of uh, Ukraine? Yes, I do. Uh, you know, I think Germany has moved several degrees since the Bucha, the, the scenes from Bucha and reports from other Kiev suburbs and small towns Russia has occupied have, have been filtering out. Italy is now which is the other great um, sort of gas and oil importer from Russia. Italy is now formally sort of in, in favor of moving towards some kind of an embargo. So that's a big shift. And Germany is talking about accelerating its timetable, which was to end its dependence on Russian gas by 2024. That's a long time away. And by, on oil by the end of this year. That, that, that just looks untenable now. And I expect if, if we see more, as I'm sure we will, Russian atrocities, that Western opinion will continue to harden. So I'm, I'm, not, I'm not really so much worried or haven't been so much worried by Western unity. I think that's been one of the extraordinary silver linings of the past six weeks. I'm, I'm worried about the West's ability to bring other parts of the world along with it, including you know, Middle East partners, India, 
this hemisphere and parts of Africa. And, and that's, you know, continuing to be quite a difficult sell to those countries. I wouldn't um, for, for a second doubt um, anything that the ambassador and formerly, of course, the general is talking about. I, I'm, I'm no military expert. What I fear as a non-military expert is that over time, and this might be weeks or months, Russia's much reduced military aims, you know, basically to control the, 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 the Donbass region, given that they're now going to be concentrated on that rather than diverted five ways, as they have been in the last six weeks, is going to be more attainable. And that, you know, we are at some point going to be presented with a choice of partly directed by Zelensky, but with a choice of whether to accept that as a basis for some kind of negotiation and therefore some kind of relaxation of sanctions, or whether to sponsor, again, going with what Zelensky's judgment is, to sponsor a sort of longer term Mujahideen style situation in Afghanistan 1980 situation. And I don't know what, you know, I don't know what the outcome would be on that. But my concern is Russia will be more capable of achieving its more moderate, more modest aims. Rosa, what do you think of what Ed has just said and, and the multiple ways this shift can go? We can also add to this that uh, today, the day we're recording this, President Zelensky uh, spoke to the uh, UN Security Council, I guess, and said, you know, essentially threw down a challenge, right, to the, the, to the UN and said, you know, either you can do something about this or maybe you should shut down. Yeah, I mean, the situation in Ukraine makes uh, obvious once again what, what has been true since the formation of the United Nations, which is that the Security Council is can often be rendered completely ineffective by the veto of any one of the five permanent members. And clearly, the Security Council is not going to be able to act, for instance, on allegations of war crimes in a robust way, given that Russia will certainly veto any resolutions. China will almost certainly veto any such resolutions. You know, the, the, the I think we've all known for decades that the structure of the United Nations was ceasing to be workable. We have obviously, between climate change, the pandemic, uh, the current crisis in Ukraine, crisis in Syria, I think have just made it even more obvious that Zelensky, <laughs> I mean, Zelensky might have said, you've already shut down, frankly in the sense that the United Nations has been rendered relatively ineffective for a pretty long time. That doesn't mean it's completely ineffective uh, when it comes to, for instance, investigations of war crimes and playing a sort of declaratory role. I think it still has some important things it can do. But, but you know, Zelensky's uh, contempt, in a sense, for the UN and frustration that this supposed United Nations seems, seems really impotent to do anything is, you know, is fair enough uh, and is not, in, in a sense, it's not news. You know, I, I can't really opine on the military side of it. Like, like Ed, I defer to Doug on this. My concern still is less about the conventional military tactics of the Russians and more about whether at some point Putin gets sufficiently desperate that the Russians consider the use of a tactical nuclear weapon. And we know that some of their doctrine calls for that at least in theory, um, I have absolutely no idea, obviously, of what Putin's inner circle is saying to him, what his military leaders are saying to him. There's clearly some evidence, according to news reporting at least, that U.S. intelligence thinks that 
his military leaders uh, have not been honest with him. I suppose if I were one of Putin's military leaders, I would not want to be honest with him either. So it, it's virtually impossible to discern what the thinking, what Putin's thinking is at this point. Does he feel cornered? Does he feel like all is going to plan because he doesn't really care? He only really wanted the parts of the East that he's, he's retreating to in any case. No idea. Uh, and I'm curious to know whether anybody else feels like there are additional tea leaves that are there for us to read. What do you think, Doug? I hesitate because I don't think any of us really knows. If I have any inkling on this as to Putin's internal deliberations, I'm less confident about what he's actually thinking and and more about what the military leadership around him may be thinking. And here are just a couple comments. One is they must be embarrassed, even humiliated by the performance of the Russian military on the ground. And that may have an impact on the advice they give going forward. What they want to avoid, I think, at this point is further humiliation, further demonstration of their military's incompetence. And it may be that they are, therefore, as we go forward, they put a break on some of Putin's uh, military ambitions in order to sort of stop the, stem the, the bleeding, stop the bleeding of the Russian military, which I think is quite serious impact right now. The other thing is the overall impact of on any authoritarian regime, of an authoritarian regime that, that has demonstrated military incompetence. Because at the end of the day, it's the Russian military that is the backbone of the authoritarian state. And when that backbone proves wanting, when it proves incompetent, the state itself is at risk. So I think those are some dynamics that while it's impossible perhaps to predict what Putin's actually thinking. I think that the military institution which works for him may be having second thoughts about, about doubling down or proceeding on a sort of a, on a, in an attrition, a war of attrition uh, going forward in Ukraine. I'm just curious if you were one of Putin's military commanders and you were having a, a conference with Putin, he said, don't spare my feelings, Doug. Give it to me straight. What is your advice for me? And, and you being a brave and reckless fellow decided that you were going to give him your best military advice. What would you be telling him? I think I'd remind him. Uh, first of all, I don't think that's, Im- that's not imaginable. Uh, I mean, I have been yeah, in this, probably not. <laughs> I have been in a situation with that with both President Bush and President Obama. And our system permits that, right? Our, our system is a system where you can close the door in the situation room and you can or in the Oval Office when invited and have an honest conversation. Even though it's something you know the president doesn't want to hear. And in fact, the two presidents I worked for personally both both welcomed that and expected that. They expected that of, of their advisors. I don't think that's the case at all with Putin. But if we could imagine a different Putin who is also an authoritarian leader of Russia, I would, as a military advisor, remind him of the importance of the Russian military to the Russian state, and by extension to him personally and his position of power. And the longer this goes on in Ukraine, and the longer the Russian military suffers the kind of embarrassing losses and demonstrates the incompetence of its structure, of the institution, the more dangerous 
it is to the um, to the Russian state. So that would be my brave advice, but I don't think anybody's going to give that to to Vladimir Putin. Ed, the United States has been pretty deft at staying ahead of the moves here. Yesterday, Jake Sullivan did another press conference, sort of talked about where things were and where we where he thought things were going, and you know we're moving into a phase here where it's it's somewhat delicate because. As you indicated in your last answer, that the, the only person who can negotiate peace on behalf of Ukraine is Ukraine. And the United States can't be seen to be trying to intervene on that at all, which leaves our job to be as supportive as we can possibly be. But of course, if we provide a lot of support over the next two weeks, say, or the next several months, you know, with regard to this fight in the East, this could have an effect of prolonging this. And that in turn could cause tensions within the alliance. Do you think they're handling it right so far? And are you worried about the challenges that they're going to face over the next couple of weeks, months? Uh, yeah, I have to I have to mention that in the context of what D- Doug was just saying, a brilliant cartoon I saw a couple of days ago, I forget where, but it has, it shows Putin shooting himself in the foot and the general standing next to him says, good shot, sir. And, you know, that to me captured the, uh, <laughs> captured what Doug <laughs> what Doug was talking about. I don't know enough, and again, Doug's going to be better to talk about this, but I don't know enough about what the logistical problems are in terms of us getting the Ukrainians more Patriot-style anti-missile systems, because I know a lot of the threat now to the big cities outside of Donbass, the Donbass, such as Kharkiv and, and Kiev and Odessa, et cetera, are going to come from long-range artillery and from the sky. So air defense and um, Russian equivalent of Patriot missiles, which I think the former Warsaw Pact countries have some stock of, I don't know what the logistical difficulty is of getting them in on enough scale to protect Ukraine from what some political scientists call herbicide, from from killing cities, um, to protect the cities because cities are where the people are, right? Just like banks are where the money is, cities are where the people are. And if we can do that to a sufficient degree, I think that makes a lot, will make a lot of difference to Zelensky's willingness and ability to really up the ante with Russia and to attempt to take back territory that the more concentrated Russian forces don't want to give up. And that's, that therefore, to me, seems to be one of the really critical components of answering your question, and I'm not really able to answer it. So if Doug knows the answer to that. I think there are some early signals just in the last couple of days that there's some moves afoot to do just as you're suggesting it. And and this is by way of, I think there's a report that the Czechs have now transferred several handfuls of T-72, sort of a Soviet vintage, but modernized main battle tanks over to uh, Ukraine. And there's, of course, a now several weeks long discussion underway, or maybe a process underway, to likewise transfer what are called S-300 surface-to-air missile systems, which the Ukrainians have, but in limited numbers, from NATO allies. And I think there are four NATO allies that still have the S-300. Transfer those systems to the Ukrainians as well. And that would be a major move forward because here we'd be moving systems that are important to securing the airspace over Ukraine without imposing a no-fly zone and also giving them offensive systems like the main battle tank 
uh, that would be uh, needed to further the attrition of the Russian forces, even as Russia s- concentrates in the Donbass. Each of the NATO allies, who, which, which has these uh, Soviet vintage equipment items, however, expect backfill by more modernized and NATO interoperable or NATO standard equipment. And to me, this sounds like a no-brainer. I mean, this is, this is a, a, the double benefit of bolstering Zelensky's forces and modernizing at the same time, modernizing these easternmost of our NATO allies. So we should be pursuing this full throttle, full speed ahead, because it does present us this, this sort of dual benefit. Yeah, Rosa, most of the really thoughtful analysis on this war goes on on Twitter. And uh, one Aww. of the, yeah, exactly. And one of the points that I made yesterday was I've seen reports that 75% of Russia's military has been committed to this conflict. And the Ukrainians are volunteering to try to destroy as much of that as possible. That strikes me as kind of an opportunity that the United States should not pass up. Clearly so. Uh, you know, I, I actually have another question for Doug, um, which I'll throw out and he can, he can answer at his leisure. Last time we talked, Putin had just put, had just announced that he was putting Russian forces on nuclear alert. And Doug, you were very reassuring. You said, you weren't too concerned about that since it seemed to be largely rhetorical in nature and that the, there was no evidence to believe that Russia was actually moving its nuclear assets into position, moving its submarines or doing anything much other than Putin's announcement. And I, I wanted to check in with you, Doug, to see if you still feel the same way as, as anything changed there. But, but David, in answer to your question, I think, I think we need to keep doing what we are doing. I think that the support of Notwithstanding Zelensky's totally understandable criticism of the UN, I think the support that has been pouring in from the West to the Ukrainian people and the Ukrainian military, both you know, both in terms of humanitarian support and in terms of direct military support, has been part of something that's really morale boosting to the Ukrainians. And clearly, there's already a great deal of patriotic desire to defend their own country. And I think that the knowledge that they're not completely alone adds to that and makes it easier for them to sustain that. And so keeping up that momentum from the U.S. Uh, at a moment when the Russians are, are you know, on the defensive, astonishingly to many of us, uh, you know, I'm one of the many people who thought, oh, man, this is going to be over in a week. And it's, it's amazing and impressive that the Ukrainians have managed to have so much military success and quite stunning that the Russians have had so little. And I, I, on that, I, I almost wonder. You know, it's just a little bit like, uh, you know, nobody predicted the fall of the Soviet Union and then, and then it collapsed when it collapsed fast. And similarly, you know, for, for years, we've had this sense of Russia as having, having a formidable military and certainly at least having really rebuilt it in very substantial ways in the last 15 years or so. And maybe this is the moment when it starts to crumble. I would like to think that that's the case. You know, I also think that the Russians are, have made the same kind of mistake that the U.S. has made over and over which is underestimating the, underestimating the nationalism of, of the people whose country we're in and underestimating their willingness, even if they're angry at each other, their willingness to band together to fight against an external force. And that's the irony here, that, that even as Putin has been rightly critical in some ways of U.S. adventures uh, in regime change in places like Iraq, he appears to have fallen into precisely the same trap. 
Interesting. Doug, did did want to pick up on what Rosa was at? Yeah. So uh, on Rosa's uh, point about the the nuclear moves. So all we've seen so far was that sort of one-off statement by Putin. I'm sure that U.S. Strategic Command and and the intelligence community here in the in in uh, the U.S. is watching carefully for physical indicators or any changes in the alert status of the different delivery systems of the the Russian uh, nuclear capability. And so far, none reported. So I think uh, steady as she goes uh, on this front. So this is the point we take a break and we say goodbye to the people who joined us from the general public. And we say, if you want to get the whole broadcast or get all the other things we just do for our members, then you should go become a member. Go to the dsrnetwork.com, click on membership for the price of a latte a month. You can be a member. And we've got a lot of stuff that's just just for members. And at a time like this, uh, and I think the rest of the time as well, it's uh, well worth the effort. So go go try that if you're not a member yet. You can listen to the rest of this. For all our members, hold on a second. We'll be back in a moment. Hi, I'm Grant Haver, and I wanted to introduce you to the newest podcast on the DSR Network, Next in Foreign Policy. Every other week, Zoe Weinberg and I talk with new and emerging foreign policy experts about the issues of today and tomorrow. We've covered everything from the war in Ukraine to the impact of pop culture on policy. So if you want to better understand the people and ideas that will be shaping the debate in Washington and around the world for years to come, check us out wherever you find your podcasts.